It's difficult to explain things that are unexplainable. It goes without saying, I think. Some years ago, I had the great privilege and benefit of discovering a piano player named Keith Jarrett, and particularly a four-movement concert that he played in Köln, Germany, called the Köln Concert. And the thing that was really most intriguing about this concert was that it was um, uh, improvised, and he was willing to take a risk for the entire concert to just improvise what he was playing. And as I've listened to that probably maybe a hundred times, I've learned sections of it. I don't play piano, but I've learned and memorized sections of how different parts of the piano uh, concerto go. And I struggle with using words to try to explain what listening to Keith, Keith Jarrett does for me emotionally and intellectually. I can tell you that when I hear certain parts, I feel an experience and I hear deep joy. And other parts I hear amazing sad parts. I hear real loneliness and I hear struggle and mystery and awe and even conquering victory at different parts. And I can tell you what happens when I hear that, but I can't tell you why that happens. And the fact that I can't tell you why it moves me the way that it does doesn't frustrate me or confuse me. The fact that I can't explain why it moves me like it does actually rather fuels an ever-increasing and unceasing curiosity about the piece. I'm more curious about it because I can't explain why it does what it does. And in much the same way, I can tell you what the Bible says about the Godhead, but I can't tell you logically or rationally why God is like that. I simply believe it because I trust what Scripture says about God more than I trust my own logical and rational thinking about what God should be like. And even though I can't tell you why God is like that, it doesn't ever confuse me or frustrate me that he says that he is like that in Scripture. And though I can't quite logically grasp all that God is, it still strengthens and engages my curiosity and awe about the Godhead. So, one of the questions we want to begin asking this morning is, how do you begin to explain the incomprehensibly indescribable eternal triunity of God. And I think the church has the church has always struggled to articulate an orthodox view of the Trinity. So historically the church has always tried to preserve orthodox doctrine about the Godhead. And orthodox just simply means a right opinion. And it's done that by writing down in various creeds, like we looked at this morning, and confessions. And of course, if there's a right opinion, that also implies that there's an incorrect way of looking at the Trinity. The incorrect way was said to lead to anathema and heresy. And the correct way was to lead to salvation. 
So it really mattered how you thought about the Godhead historically in the church. And Athanasius' creed was 27 points, and he listed 26 points about the character of the Godhead. And in the 27th point, he said, He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. So correctly articulating the Trinity was seen as tantamount to one's salvation. And of course, the creeds and confessions were written and formulated to correct unorthodox errors and opinions that had begun to creep into the church as people tried to wonder about the nature of God and other theological complexities. Currently, even today, the church continues to teach that the Trinity is the distinctive mark of the religion which Jesus founded. One theologian wrote, The Trinity is at once the beginning and the end of all insight into Christianity. And so we would ask, why then do we hardly ever hear a sermon on the Trinity? If it's the beginning of insight to Christianity. Another theologian said, the Trinity is oneness qualified by threeness. Still another has said, God is a being of fellows. And even though we've used words to clarify who this being of fellows is, we cannot logically or rationally arrive at a proper understanding of the nature and essence of God. We have to rely on Scripture for all of our understanding about the Godhead. But we'll see in a moment that Scripture often leaves room for confusion on the topic. So one of the things before us I think we should consider this morning is why logic and rational thought don't explain anything about God's mystery to us. So probably the first thing that we should do when thinking about articulating anything about the Trinity is just forget about depending on human logic to explain it. And we'll see this morning that it's not logical and rational to explain God the way he has revealed himself. Samuel Butler wrote, No mistake is more common and more absurd than appealing to logic in cases that are beyond her jurisdiction. That's certainly the case with the Trinity. And I contend that trying to explain the Trinitarian understanding of the Godhead in logical and rational terms doesn't bring us any closer to understanding it. I'm not going to try to make the Trinity more believable for you or more logical or rational this morning. But I do have an end in sight, and that is to give you a better reason to be all the more curious and amazed about the person of God as he's revealed himself to us in the Scriptures. Rational minds will not and cannot comprehend the nature and essence of God. And frankly, it isn't for us to decide what Scripture is telling us is rational or not. We don't decide what's rational about Scripture. God's already written everything that's important for us. So our, un un our unerring standard of thinking and speaking about God must always be derived from the Scriptures. And when we trust them to speak, they speak clearly about both the unity and the threeness of God. And I think the difficulty is that 
God stoops deeply to accommodate his revelation to our finite understanding. But still, he speaks extremely sparingly about what his essence is. It's kind of like talking about essence is so beyond the idea of talking about attributes. Talking about essence is more like, you know, what could it be like to be God? To be three distinct eternal persons who all possess the same essence. Forget trying to nail it on the head. How do you get within a couple miles of that idea? But even during the church's difficulty to find a proper way to articulate the Trinity, the church has also been teaching the entire time that though we can't fully understand the Trinity by virtue of nature, reason, or sense, there's still nothing in it that is absurd or contradictory to reason. It's because the orthodox view of the Trinity is revealed in the sacred scriptures that we are bound to believe it. However incapable we may be of comprehending what the essence of God is really like. And the struggle with understanding the Trinity really focuses on one issue. How do we explain Jesus as the eternal member of the Trinity? And so one of the questions before us also is, why was it first considered necessary to even get into a discussion about the Trinity? And the answer is because Jesus came onto the scene. Jesus is at the heart of the controversy of the Trinity. God the Father, even in the Old Testament, said, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling block and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Scripture has always said that Jesus is the stumbling block. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were never considered to be the stumbling block. And as mysterious as God has always been, he's never been referred to as the stumbling block. And our issue is, how do we begin to think about the mystery of a human being possessing attributes that are ascribed only to God? And I think we can begin this way. If Christ is both the Word of God and Christ is the Son of God, and if the Word was with God from the beginning, then so must the Son have been with God from the beginning. So to understand how Jesus fits into the Trinity equation, we need to ask maybe a larger question, which is, what is it about God that's a mystery? And I think there are essentially three major ideas about God that are most mysterious. The first one is that God is incomprehensible in his essence. We have the Westminster Confession, a great document. This is what it stated about God. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body or parts, incomprehensible and most absolute. 
Part 3 said, In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, it said, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And Calvin was the premier theologian who said that God is a mystery for one reason, because he is incomprehensible in the thing that makes him uniquely God. God's essence is his intrinsic nature, or that part of him that is in, an indispensable quality that makes him uniquely God. And Calvin was careful to make the very important distinction when he was speaking about the Trinity. He said, in the fullness of all that it means to be God, his essence is so incomprehensible that his majesty is hidden from us, remote from all of our senses. And he said, we are failing to recognize the incomprehensibility of God if we try to bring him closer to us by sensible representations or by invoking theophanies which are intended precisely to remind us that we are unable to grasp God in his essence. And sometimes the problem is bigger than just not grasping the theological complexities of God and misrepresenting that with idols. Some people actually misunderstood the complexity of God so much that they actually believed that we humans are gods of all things. Mormons and disciples of Neil Donald Walsh, who wrote Conversations with God, are in that category. And only someone who is clueless about what God has revealed about himself in Scripture would ever suggest that we would be gods in the unique way that God is God. For a person to suggest or for anyone to assume that another person could possess the same exact attributes and characteristics of God to the exact same extent that God himself possessed them would make that person clinically insane. And of course, this is exactly the problem that the religious leaders had with Jesus. You know, this confusion about Jesus was rampant in his day. Seven times in the Gospel of John alone, people said to Jesus, you're tormented by a demon. I'll give you my translation of that. You are, you are so held in possession by a demon, Jesus, that it has dethroned your reasoning power. And the demon has taken the place of your mind, and you are right now expressing the mind and consciousness of the demon dwelling in you. Colloquially, we could say, Jesus, you are out of your mind if you think you're God. And of course, to add to the mystery and the confusion is, Scripture teaches exactly that, that this was exactly what God was doing in the person of Jesus. Scripture teaches us that God sent his Son into the world in the likeness of human flesh to be the utmost sensible representation to us 
through whom the invisible, incomprehensible God would make himself most fully known to us. Christ is the wisdom of God. And all that God ever intended to express in his grace and mercy towards humanity is perfectly expressed in Jesus, according to Scripture. Colossians 2.9 said, All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily where the word bodily suggests that all that is the fullness of God is found in Christ in reality and not just symbolically. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The words exact imprint are variously translated as the exact representation of his nature or being or the express image of his person. The actual word is the transliteration of the Greek word character. He is the very character of God. And to some, the whole idea that Jesus could possess the very nature and character of God is absolutely insane. Because they're struggling with the irrational and illogical aspect of knowing what Scripture says about God alone. And to others, the church, the scriptural representation that this is truly who Jesus is, is a mysterious but an ever clearer revelation of the grace and mercy of God. Well, I think, secondly, that God is a mystery because he is spirit and invisible. You'll notice that I didn't say God is a spirit, but he is spirit. I think the reason for the very first commandment is that his nature as spirit forbids us to indulge in some kind of carnal or or earthly speculation concerning the mystery of who God is. Relying on scripture is our only means to coming to terms with this difficult doctrine of the Trinity. For example, in 1 Timothy 1.17, it says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Timothy 6.15 and 16, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. It's interesting that in John 1.18 and following, several Greek manuscripts on this passage say, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so the scribes writing this are panicking a little bit because... They felt they needed to change the phrasing in some manuscripts to say son because you couldn't write that Jesus is the only begotten God and get away with it. And that's because they were asking the question, well, how is God begotten? Robert Raymond and other Reformed theologians suggest the translation of John 1.18 should be God no man has seen at any time. The only Son, himself God, 
who is continually in the bosom of the Father, that one has revealed him. Another of the mysteries that surrounds God being spirit and therefore mysterious to us is that God is non-corporeal. He doesn't have any property of matter that can be ascribed to him. He has no extension in space, no weight, no mass, no bulk, no form, no body parts. God is said to be one in essence without any parts. And of course, this is the atheist's reason for unbelief. That God has no extension in space must therefore be proof that he cannot be real. But again, the problem is with Jesus. Everybody was fine with the idea that God is a mystery and invisible. That wasn't a stumbling block. But Jesus, who is the exact representation of God, who forgives sin and heals like only the invisible God can heal, had extension in space and weight and form and bulk and parts. This notion may also be responsible for the reason why Jesus never actually came out and said, I am God. To avoid the confusion, not that he's not God in essence, but that he's not God the Father whom no one has seen at any time. God himself warned Israel of the great danger in attempting to make a representation of him. I'm going to look at a couple of things in Deuteronomy chapter 4 just for a minute. So this is a summary of the covenant that God made with Moses. It says in chapter 4, verse 11, Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. Take careful heed to yourselves. Verse 15. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. And in verse 25. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So here's God reminding Moses, verse 12 of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you didn't see any form. You only heard a voice. And God is, interestingly enough, saying he's a consuming fire and he's talking in the midst of a burning bush, but the bush isn't getting consumed. And what his eyes are seeing, what Moses' eyes are seeing, is a fire that's speaking to him. And even if he wanted to somehow represent that according to what he thought God might be, Moses would have to represent a fire that's burning a bush that isn't consuming. I mean, if he wanted to represent God as he thought God actually was in his being, that's what he'd have to do, and 
Frankly, Moses is undoubtedly in pretty deep, mysterious wonder about God at this point. Well, the third idea here is that God is the absolute God in his oneness. To to make the mystery more mysterious, we have this overwhelming evidence in Scripture that God is absolutely God. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read this. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. In verse 35, Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. And so Israel saw all these things happening, but they didn't see a being doing it. They saw what was happening in relationship to them. And there must have been something going on in their mind that made them want to, you know, categorize it. Or solidify it or give it some sort of formal expression. So they could maybe better relate to what it was that was doing this. And you can see where the New Testament religious leaders were struggling to fit Jesus into their logical and rational frame of reference too, right? See, the Jewish leaders were thinking, well, we know the Old Testament pretty well, and if there is no other God, and God himself is God alone, then how can Jesus make himself out to be God? If God is absolutely God, then there's no other thing that can be God. And that's why Jesus coming onto the scene, appearing to have the attributes of God and demonstrating that on a regular basis, is such a mystery to us. You remember the two Timothy passages that I read earlier, I'm... I kind of glossed over a couple of other things that relate to this point. And I highlighted them differently. 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So the Old Testament scripture teaches that God is absolute perfection in himself. The absoluteness of being, then, can only be attributed to one being. 
And yet, Scripture teaches that God is a plurality in the midst of his absolute oneness. Well, no wonder it's a mystery. And to try to reason through this rationally and logically is going to be a huge struggle. Folks, Jesus didn't have to come into the world to reveal that God is one. The Old Testament clearly taught that God is one long before Jesus arrived. You remember the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You could translate that this way. Hear, O Israel, the Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh alone. The literal version is, the Yahweh is our God's. So this speaks to a plurality, even in the one verse that speaks so clearly to God's oneness. The use of Elohim allows for the idea of God's, which is kind of a composite unity idea. And what's interesting is the noun Elohim is consistently used with singular verbs and singular adjectives and pronouns. And even further, the word used there for one also carries implications that point to a plurality. This is the same word in Genesis 2.24, where husband and wife, who are two persons, are said to become one flesh. But Scripture also teaches that the Trinity is one God. Not three gods, not ceasing to be simple and indivisible because he is three persons. God is three persons who share one essence. God possesses one deity, one majesty, one glory, one will. There's no activity where only the Son or only the Father or only the Spirit is involved. They are always in concert with each other, acting as one. So let's look for a moment at why Jesus is the philosophical problem. Even the earliest heresies about God were about Christ's relationship to God. And they were mainly focused on questions surrounding the birth of Christ. Early on, then, the argument began to be formulated like this. If God is eternal, with no beginning or no end, and there's one God who in himself is the absolute God, and Christ is in his essence all that God is, how is it that the Christ whom we say possesses the essence of God from eternity could be born? This discussion is best brought to light by two Christian philosophers, Tertullian and Kierkegaard. And they were both arguing that you can't arrive at any kind of genuine faith by rational and logical human thinking. It's impossible. Some of the early Christian persecution was formulated around the absurdity of the idea of Christ being the Son of God from eternity while he's a baby in the manger. Tertullian was a, uh, a, an African philosopher who was 
writing around 200 A.D. He was really the first apologist for Christian literature, and he had a huge extensive body of Christian literature. And his, he was really the first one to formulate a Trinitarian the, theology. And he was saying that God is three persons, one substance, referring to God, God's Lagos, his son, and God's Sophia, his wisdom, the Holy Spirit. And in his day, he was struggling with helping the people get beyond the idea of the incarnation alone when they were struggling with Jesus. He said the problem is really much greater than just the incarnation. This is what he wrote. It's somewhat graphic, but I think you'll get the point. This is what he said. Suppose that in point of fact, he had wanted to be born of a wolf or a ewe or a cow and put on the body of some animal, wild or domestic, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. In that case, I judge your censure of him would say, well, this is unseemly for God and unworthy of God's Son, and anyone who believes that is a fool. And Tertullian say, said, to be sure, it is foolish to judge God on the basis of our own understanding. What is so foolish as to believe in a God who's been born, you ask, and of a virgin at that, and in fleshly form, too, and who has wallowed about in those very degradations of nature. Come then, start from the birth itself, the object of your aversion, and the womb, and of the bodily fluid and the blood, the loathsome curdled lump of flesh which has to be fed for nine months off this same muck. God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. So he says to my friends, he says, what is more demeaning to God? What is more shameful to God? Getting born or dying? To carry flesh or to carry a cross? To be circumcised or to be hanged? To be fed at the breast or to be buried? To be laid in a manger or shut up in a tomb? And so he's just saying, why are you hung up on the incarnation alone? Nothing about Jesus is logical and rational. None of it is explicable. None of it is understandable. None of it can be understood through a rational and logical thinking process. Yet Christ is the ever clearer revelation, but through faith alone. If eternal truth is only determined by our ability to understand it logically and rationally, he said, then we will never grasp who Jesus is unless we do it by faith. Well, Kierkegaard had a rationale as well. He was a Danish philosopher. Honestly, he's difficult to read. But I have never been more intrigued with thinking about Jesus than reading some of his writing. According to Kierkegaard, Jesus is the paradox of Christianity, a seeming contradiction which is nevertheless true and valid. In fact, Christ came into, into existence was 
and absurdity and the stumbling block to rational thinking. This is precisely the way that Kierkegaard went about trying to describe the struggle. He said, Indeed, it would seem very strange that Christianity should have come into the world merely to receive an explanation, as if it had been somewhat bewildered about itself, and hence entered the world to consult that wise man, the speculative philosopher, who can come to its assistance by furnishing the explanation. Well, what's the explanation? Well, that Jesus as an eternal being who died is a rational absurdity. And he was saying this. He was saying, we Christians have tried to make our faith palatable to the unbelieving mind. We don't want them to suffer any despair or or confusion or frustration as they wrestle with the rational absurdities of believing in Christ. We want to make it too easy for them. But this is what happens when you wrestle with Christ philosophically. The God of heaven didn't become more reasonable or more palatable to the senses of the rational mind when Jesus came on the scene. Scripture testifies that to the unbelieving mind, Jesus didn't make God any more believable. Jesus just threw a wrench into the whole thing. And Kierkegaard said, if we really want to believe in God, then Jesus is the only object that can be believed, because otherwise God is still completely incomprehensible. He still can't be objectively grasped. And yet to believe the essence of God is in Christ is to believe what is rationally absurd, he was saying. And the truth of all that he was putting together is this. You have to get beyond logical and rational to get to faith. You have to. And then he kind of wanted to have fun with the people that were reading his stuff. And he kind of approached it with a tongue-in-cheek kind of attitude. And he said, okay, so I get it. You want proof before you believe. You want proof that God is objective. You want proof that God has some um, extension in space. You want the idea of God's incomprehensibility to be comprehensible. And then Jesus coming to earth as the incomprehensible essence of God will somehow become logical for you. If that's what you want, then I would suggest, he said, let the comedy begin. Because you can't make Jesus logical. You have to allow people to wrestle with the absurdity of it. It's only when you come out on the other side of the wildly unreasonable that you can truly come to faith. For Kierkegaard, the reason Jesus is an objective absurdity is because in reality, the actual eternal spiritual truth has come into being in time as a particular individual. Christ and has put himself in relationship with our existence and has proclaimed himself 
as the paradox. And this paradox, the God-man, is an absurdity to the human understanding. And he said the problem with Jesus isn't that he's not believable. It's that he's offensive to rational thinking. And this is, of course, the atheist's problem. He can't figure it out logically and rationally, and so he can't believe it. And when you apply logic and reason to Jesus, you can't wind up anywhere but logically and rationally offended. So the options to the gospel then are not faith or unbelief. There's a crossroads. If Jesus is at the crossroad of thinking, the crossroad is this. Faith in the truth of who Christ is or offense at the truth of who Christ is. Only from the possibility of rational offense can one turn either to offense or to faith. But one never comes to faith except from the possibility of being offended. And instead of using the category of doubt when we talk to people, we should be using the word faith and offense. And just let me finish with this thing that he said here in, in Matthew. He got this idea of being offended from the book of Matthew. Just listen, it's only a few verses. Matthew 11. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. See, he doesn't say blessed is he who believes in me. He says blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so even John begins to have some doubts, doesn't he? He sends a couple of guys out to Jesus to help solve the perplexity that he's rolling around in his own mind. And that's amazing, really, because Jesus immediately asks the crowd, who may have er overheard the comments he was making to John's disciples, he says three times in a row, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He says... Did you go out in the wilderness to see a reed shaking in the wind? Did you go out to see a man clothed in really nice, soft garments? Or maybe you went out to go see a prophet. In other words, did you see a man who is yielding to popular opinion when you went out to go see what John was all about? Someone veering back and forth with no convictions of any kind? Some fickle guy? Is that what you went out to see? It's like he's saying, look, folks, this guy was living in the wilderness. You know, he was feasting on bugs and honey. Clothed in camel's hair, whatever that might be like. You can almost imagine that every day was a bad hair day for John. No, Jesus is saying, you went out to see the very 
opposite of someone wearing the effeminate soft garments of the royal courts. You went out and you saw a man with unshaken steadfastness. And at that very moment, uniquely enough, John's in prison because he dared to rebuke a king for committing adultery, refusing to compromise even one of God's commandments. And while he's out there, by the way, he's rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees for daring to flee from the wrath of God by coming down to be baptized without repenting for sin. Jesus is saying, you saw a man that was declaring that the kingdom of God had arrived and he was preparing the way for the Lord. He loudly declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God the moment that he saw him that it was going to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus declares that blessed are those who are not so offended at his person that it destroys their ability to come to faith. And so I ask you this morning, is Jesus a mystery or the fuel to an unremitting curiosity or both? So when you see Jesus, what song do you hear? Do you hear a song of majestic beauty with a mysterious melody of Grace and mercy wrapped up all around it? Do you hear a song of indescribable and incomprehensible beauty and sadness in the person of Jesus? Do you hear a song that every time you hear it, it causes an unremitting curiosity and devotion to the person of God? Do you hear the Father's loveliest song of His only begotten Son? a melody of beauty and and deep curiosity, pleading with you to consider the incomprehensibility with absolute awe and wonder. Do you hear a song that whispers to the core of your being, begging you to take the risk of being offended at something that will always be completely mysterious and completely incomprehensible, but is nonetheless Absolutely true. That's what I believe the proper response is, and that's what God wants to do for us and in us in light of his incomprehensible majesty. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the faith you have given us to trust you and to believe your word, to not worry if it's rational enough or logical enough, Father, for every heart and mind that's in this room right now, I pray you would be effectively working on them to commit them, to commit them to being people who see you with an unremitting curiosity and devotion. Father, as we continue now to sing, help our hearts to lift up your greatness and your mercy to us. In Christ's name, amen.